Good morning. Welcome to Evanston Bible Fellowship. My name is not Jason Lancaster, as you may be realizing right now. Um, welcome. I'm so glad you're here this morning. My name is Andy. I work here at the church, and I am honored and, uh, and humbled and excited to be preaching to you today. I'm also honored and humbled and excited that Gary Davis taught me how to tie a bow tie this morning. Just want to give him public props, because this is awesome. Uh, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand, and the ushers are going to bring you one. And if you don't have one at home, uh, take it home. It's our gift to you. Hope you'll open it up and read it. Um, so this morning, we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. So I'll give you a second to get there. And uh, we've got a lot to cover, so I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture. We'll pray and ask God to help us, and then uh, we'll get started. So open in your Bibles, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 3. Verses 1 through 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Let's pray together. Lord God, I ask this morning that you would bless our time together. God, I pray that as I speak to my friends from your word, that I wouldn't say anything too stupid, God, that I wouldn't say anything unhelpful, God, but that your Holy Spirit would go before me and that you would put the right words into the hearts of the right people, God, that you might be glorified and, God, that we might find joy. Lord, I thank you for this church, for the opportunity to preach, Lord, and I am humbled and amazed at how you've blessed Evanston Bible Fellowship over the last 25 years. Lord, we love you. We ask you to send your spirit in this place, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Get set up here. Got my rig. Okay, so um, uh, I already touched the mic. Sorry, Pat. I, know, I don't know how that happened. So you may not know this about me, um, but in addition to my, my job at EBF, I moonlight as a clarinet teacher. So I did both of my degrees in clarinet performance. A clarinet, um, you've seen it up here sometimes. It's like black, um, has keys. It's cool, um, but I do that, and so I spend one day a week out at a high school in the suburbs teaching about a dozen or so clarinet students, and my students are, um, are all kinds of different people. I've got the, uh, like the really gifted kid who has no social skills. I've got the girl who dresses like she's from the 1950s. I have, uh, somebody was that person, I heard you. Um, I've got the girl who's like a really hard worker no matter what, the cutthroat girl, and I've got the, the kid who has an absentee dad who really just wants to talk to me. We just talk. We don't play clarinet. Um, so I have a lot of interesting students. But of all my students, the most interesting student I have is my student, Kim. Um, Kim has faithfully come to her clarinet lessons week after week 
for a year and a half. So we've done a lot of clarinet together. Um, And Kim has autism, and Kim has several learning disabilities. Um, And she just loves to play the clarinet. I don't know how else to say it. She just loves it. She loves band. She has a new purple clarinet. She loves the purple clarinet. She loves taking private lessons. She, like, eats, sleeps, and breathes band. Like, all we talk about is band. All she talks about is band. And the interesting thing about teaching Kim is that every week, since we started, a year and a half ago, every lesson is exactly the same. A year and a half, exactly the same lesson. So we start our lesson and we go through warm-ups. We warm up together, right? Then we, then we play scales. We work through a bunch of scales in, in this scale book. Then we work on her band music, which is really helpful. And I always write in the rhythms for her and I, I help her count them. And, and then the lesson ends with me saying, Kim, you're doing great. Next week, practice what I told you. Remember what I told you. And when you come back, we'll make progress. And every week... Without fail, it's the same clarinet lesson. Long tones, scales, band music, no improvement, right in the rhythms, send her on her merry way, and she comes back, and she's so excited, and she just loves it. Her parents tell me all the time, they say, Andy, Kim wants to do marching band in college, where can she go? And I'm like, I don't even know, man, but she's so enthusiastic, she's like my most excited student, but every week is exactly the same, it's exactly the same every week, and... I used to get so frustrated with her. (laughs) Am I a bad teacher? Is there some disconnect here? I I didn't understand why we couldn't make progress. But at some point, I sort of realized that, you know, she's showing up, and she's having a good time, and we spend 3 to 3.30 together once a week, and that's probably enough. And I know, I mean, I know that if she practiced what I told her, and if she went home and worked on it, and if she could come back to her next lesson and have remembered what I told her, we could make progress. And I'm, I'm sure she would have more fun. I'm sure she would like it even more. So each week, I beg her. I say, Kim, just remember, please. And she never does. She never does. And I started to think how much this is like our relationship with God. We come to him night after night, week after week, crisis after crisis, right? In hospital rooms and on our knees and at dinner tables and over open caskets and with bated breath and in great expectation and in coffee shops and in dorm rooms. And God lovingly, patiently, firmly sometimes reminds us of what we already know. God reminds us of what we already know. Now God has chosen to reveal himself to us as a father That imagery can be hard for some of you and and for me. Um, I know all of us have earthly fathers who failed us at one point or another. So it can be painful that God has chosen to reveal himself as a father. Some of us can't even imagine what it would be like to have a loving father, one that didn't tell you you were worthless or hit you or scream at you. Some of us can't imagine what it would be like to even know who our father was. But God is a loving Father. He's our Heavenly Father. And He values us and He cares for us as our fathers should. And in fact, He loves us so much that He has and continues to and will continue to give everything for us. And no matter how much we show up week after week from 3 to 3.30, He doesn't get sick of us crawling back. He doesn't get sick of us coming back to him, and he doesn't get sick of us forgetting what he's taught us. Instead, he waits with open arms for us to return. In fact, our Father loves us so much that he's written us a love letter. 
It's pretty long. It's 66 books stretched out over hundreds of pages. The most passionate love story of all time he's recorded for us in more than a thousand pages depending on your font size. This letter was written by the creator of the universe and it tells the history of the universe through the lens of a love story and it contains the beginning of the story and the end of the story and the middle of the story. It's a complete text. It tells the story of a heavenly groom who came to earth on a rescue mission for the bride that he loved and he couldn't let go even though she ran away from him. It begins in a garden of immaculate beauty, and it ends with a celebratory urban wedding feast. And this love letter includes everything we need to know to hang on the best we can until Christ returns, until we are finally reunited with our glorious groom. This love letter is filled with the very things of God. This love letter is filled with the very things of God. Now, if you come to my apartment right now, in addition to absolute chaos with the creation of a nursery, you would also see greeting cards scattered all over the apartment. My wife is a card giver. I was not a card giver until I met her, but I like her, and she likes cards, so I like cards. And I, I bought so many greeting cards my first year. I'm not as good now as I used to be, but they're everywhere. They're everywhere. They're on the coffee table, stacked, because we don't have anywhere to display them. They're on the bookshelves surrounding our television. They're on the kitchen table and on the entertainment center. And the reason that I think we have greeting cards everywhere is that it really matters to you when somebody cares enough about you to write you a letter. It matters. I was so touched the first time Brittany wrote me a card. I didn't know what to do with myself. And so they're everywhere. And I wrote one back, and it was short, and it was awkward. But, but we put the cards around because we want to remember. We want to be reminded of the beauty of love and, and the passion of family and the care that's inside of that. And I want to propose to you today that we must radically remember the things of God. We must radically remember the things of God, the things he's given us in his love letter, the things he's given to us as a beautiful gift tied up in a little bow with our names on it. I had a Bible study teacher in undergrad who used to make everyone in his class write dear and then your name at the beginning of every Bible you owned. And so every Bible I have says dear Andy. I'm still not sure how I feel about that, but it's there every time. And what he was saying was, this is passionate and this is to you and this matters. And so I'm submitting to you that we have to passionately remember, radically remember the things of God, the word of God. You know, the Word of God is important. It's important enough that it put skin on and came to earth. It's important enough that the parables and the proverbs and the poetry inside have real power inside of them and that they've lasted the ages. It's important enough that it has been printed and printed even more than Harry Potter. It's impressive. It really is impressive. But these are the kind of things that obviously it would be great for us to remember. I mean, if we believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, and if we believe that it is inspired, you would think we would do well to remember it. And yet, these are the things we so often forget. And forgetting the things of God is a dangerous amnesia indeed. 
Let's look back at the text. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor good success in the sight of God and man. So it begins with a plea from a father to a son, right? Right. You can imagine this is your mother or father on your first day of school. You're walking away from them to the bus stop, and they're sort of shouting after you about a lunchbox and about to, to make good decisions and about what bus you're going to take home, and they're asking if you remembered your notebook, and they're just shouting after you. They're saying, be careful. Remember what I told you, because all of a sudden, you're walking away from safety. All of a sudden, you're walking away from safety, and this is a call to remember. And this is what we see in the Proverbs. I mean, in the beginning, we were safely with God, right? We were in community with God. We were in the Garden of Eden. We were in perfect fellowship in the presence of the Almighty. We used to sit beneath the trees with our Father, and we'd play catch in the grassy meadows, and we would eat the fruit of most trees, not all the trees. And then one day, we chose to rebel. One day, we chose to to walk away from perfect fellowship. And as we did that, as we took the keys and hopped in the car and drove away, and Eden sort of faded in our rearview mirror, we could see God just like waving at us, like, don't forget, remember, lunchbox. He's just yelling after us, because it just, it broke his heart that we had to leave. And it broke his heart that we, that we tried to leave. And he was just yelling after us, like, make good decisions, be careful, I love you, don't forget me, don't forget me. As I referenced earlier, my wife is 39 weeks pregnant. I'd thought perhaps I wouldn't be preaching today and that Jason would be preaching because I would be coaching her on her breathing structure. Alas, our baby is as stubborn or more stubborn than me, which is quite an achievement. But I remember it's going to be a boy. His name is on the DL, but you'll find out soon, hopefully in like four hours, because he's going to be struck by my prophetic word. (laughs) But it's a boy. And I'll never forget my 20-week ultrasound where I found out it was going to be a boy. We walked back into the room. Uh, the doctor's office has some painful memories for us, so I was already on edge. But we walked back to the ultrasound room, and they were showing us the body. Here's the head. He has both arms, both legs. Looks like he has five fingers. We can't see five on this hand, but we're going to go with five. And then she said, are you sure you want to know? And I said, I'm sure. She said, it's a boy. And I just freaked out. I just freaked, and it wasn't like the excited freaked. It was like, you know, men, we do this, we sort of like get freaked out, and we don't say anything to anybody for a long time. We just like, and for me, that's especially rare, if you know me. This does not happen very often. But I started thinking, what's he going to be like? I have so many friends who have a ruptured relationship with their father, and I thought to myself, is he going to love me? Is he going to respect me? Is he going to trust me? What if he looks like me? What if he gets my ears What if, hey, y'all who laughed, (laughs) you're buying me lunch. Um, But, you know, is is he going to trust me? Is he going to respect me? What am I going to teach him about being a man? What am I going to teach him about honoring people, about loving God? What am I going to do when he causes me the heartache that I caused my parents? What am I going to teach him? And what am I going to do when he forgets what I've taught him? 
See, forgetfulness is endemic in our culture. We're very good at forgetting things. Here's an example. We forget how to love our neighbor and pray for our enemies when there's a hotly contested national election for president of the United States. See, we forget that our bodies are temples when our boyfriend or girlfriend or computer screen or fiancé seems very appealing in a dorm room, in an apartment room, in the back seat, late at night. We forget to render to Caesar what is Caesar's when our taxes is, are so high. And so we cheat, we find loopholes, we work our way around it, and we steal money from our employer. We're so forgetful, even though God is calling after us in his perfect word, pursuing us with his love and calling us to remember, we're so forgetful that we have apps and alarms to remind us of things. We have blinking lights and timers, and when we go to hotels, we schedule a wake-up call. We're so forgetful. And I think we're forgetful for a lot of reasons, but I want to highlight two of those reasons. I find, primarily, in my life, and I'd guess in your life, we become forgetful when we are sorrowful, and we become forgetful when we are arrogant. We become forgetful in our sorrow, and we become forgetful in our arrogance. I mean, I get it. Like, I know, I know the heaviness. I know the broken world. You probably do too. The feeling when the heartbeat stops, the feeling when the pink slip is on your desk, the feeling when the scans did not come back clean, when you haven't slept in months because you're so anxious. Seven years of trying, no baby. Right? I know the pain. I've walked with many of you through terrible, dirty words like cancer and divorce and foreclosure and really hard, painful things. There's a certain heaviness to the human existence. It's just real. There's this perpetual pain, and like Sisyphus in Greek mythology, every day we push the same stone to the top of the hill, and every day it rolls back on top of us, and we have to start pushing again. Even like Jesus, we are a people of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And in this pain, I think we struggle with the existential, right? We struggle with the deep questions of life, with a very real sense of longing and loss. And we run from God. We run to faraway lands, and we're not sure how we got there. Or we run to God, and we're cursing him because we don't understand where he is in the midst of our pain and suffering. We say, God, where are you? Where are you in these hospital rooms and over open caskets and at dinner tables? And God promises us two things in his word. And unfortunately, the first promise he makes is that we will suffer. God says, when the suffering comes, he says, this world's going to persecute you. He says, it's going to be hard. God promises that. Jesus gives you permission for it to be hard. But he also promises that there's joy on the other side of that suffering. Like Hosea says, though we are torn, he will heal us. And he will bind us up even though we are struck down. But these moments of crisis, they lead us to forget the truths of God. We forget what we know to be true of him. We are forgetful when crisis comes. And this is why verse 3 of Proverbs chapter 3 says, we must write these things of God on our hearts. We have to bind them around our necks. We must have faithfulness and steadfast love all around us. We must remember the commandments of God so that when the storms of life come, and they're coming if they haven't come yet, that when they come, you will not be shaken. 
we etch these commands on our hearts like we were getting a tattoo. The amazing thing about getting a tattoo is that once it's done, no matter how many times it rains or how many baths I take, it's not going anywhere. And even if I get it removed, there's a scar. So you never really can get rid of it. So be careful if you decide. Come talk to me. But we tattoo these truths on our hearts so that when the floods of life wash over us and the rains come down, that it doesn't wash away. It doesn't disappear. It's not like it's written in pencil or in ballpoint pen. It's deep and it's dark. And it's the reason that we can say God is enough even when the unthinkable happens. When the floods rise around us, God's word is etched onto our hearts And we bind it around our necks and it hangs close to our hearts so that in a season of suffering, we remember God's faithfulness in the story of redemption. And Jesus models this for us. He suffered so well. Can you imagine being infinite God coming to earth to live in a womb for nine months and then on a planet for 33 years where most people hate you and even your friends turn their backs on you? Job's friends are better than Jesus' friends. Jesus' friends were not so good. Not so good. But even in the garden on his knees, he said, God, your will, not my will. And he never forgot what God had promised him. He never forgot that God had a plan and that he was faithful, even though we do. And not only because we suffer. Sometimes we forget the nature of God because we are arrogant. I know this is hard to hear. Maybe you're shocked, but I'm going to go on a limb here and say everybody's arrogant. It probably goes like this. You ready for this? Um... Uh, let's see. The Bible is really old, and see, I'm a PhD student. See, I'm a, I'm a CEO. I'm a, I'm a self-made man. I'm a liberated woman. Mm. I, I'm, a ho- I'm a stay-at-home mom, and I got a Pinterest board that would make Martha Stewart cry. You can't imagine how hot the stuff I am is, right? And everyone who just said, I'm not arrogant, especially you, okay? Especially you. But just like we did in Eden, when we took the keys and hopped in the car and drove away, we choose to be arrogant. We go our own way. We leave in the wake of our arrogance a destructive path of self-sufficiency and pride. And this, this epidemic of arrogance, is, it's pretty American in some ways. I mean, America's really good at this, except we call it self-esteem, right? Like, you're a snowflake. You're so special. There's no one like you. Anyway. We choose to be our own gods. We choose to be so arrogant. And we worship at the altar of self. We are so arrogant. And that's why we forget the teachings and the things of God in our arrogance. We forget that God has promised a faithful way. And we think that we can go a better way. And one of the reasons we forget the things of God in our arrogance is we find God's commands burdensome. We don't need to be encumbered with antiquated words of a man who was either a lunatic or the son of God, but probably nothing else. We find God's promises burdensome and hard. And so we choose to ignore them. I mean, I can relate to this. I think it's hard to be alive. I think it's hard to wake up every day and look in the mirror at yourself, and you're still you, and you still have the same problems. And I think it's hard to, you know, to do honest business. I think it's hard to tame the tongue. I I think it's hard to be vulnerable with your wives and children. I think it's hard to respect your husband. I don't, I'm not saying it's easy. But I'm saying that God's commands are a better way. That God's teachings 
God's word is true and inerrant. And it's the better way. And we have to repent of our arrogance and trust in the Lord. Like verse 5 commands us. See, God's commands, when they are internalized in our body, it's not like adding weight to a bench press bar. It's like folding air into a dough. It lightens from within. And as we internalize the things of God, we are lightened from within, not burdened from outside. Like folding air into a dough, God's commands give us buoyancy from inside. They're not burdensome. We write them on our hearts. We tattoo them on our souls so that when sorrow and arrogance come, we're stable. We're ready. We're not going to be shaken by the storms of life. We're not going to let our sorrow or our arrogance get in the way of being faithful to God. And God is calling us as his people, as his church, to remember his word and remember his character so remember. And I could stop, like, right there. I could close my Kindle, and I could walk off stage. And this would be like a lot of sermons. There would be sort of this motivational component, and, like, you have to try harder. And then once you go out and try harder, it's going to be fine. But I think that if I was listening to me, I would feel nothing but despair. Because so far I've told you a lot of things you have to do that are hard. And that's not very nice, I don't think. So I'm going to keep going in the text. So verses 5 through 8 give us a really interesting, interesting idea. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh, and refreshment to your bones. If you're anything like me, um, hearing sermons from Proverbs for six months... And knowing that there's like six more months coming is challenging. It's just challenging. It's a hard book. Um, it's, just, it's just a lot. It's like so many verses about things we're supposed to do, and then all this good stuff is supposed to happen. And we sort of view it as this like if-then relationship, simple cause and effect. Like, do good, get candy, right? Like, put quarters in the vending machine, get Diet Coke. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of, we, th- we think about it like that. But here's the interesting conundrum about Proverbs. Is there's no way you can do all this. 31 chapters? No, there's no way. There's no way. You can't. It's just, it's going to frustrate you. It's going to kill you. It's going to mess you up. And if you're anything like me, you look at this, and the mountain's too steep, the valley is too far, the road is too long. It's an impossible gap doesn't give you hope for length of days and years of life or favor or success or anything. It causes you to despair because you know you can't do that. It seems like an idealistic, unrealistic book of the Bible. But there's something amazing about Proverbs. The amazing thing about Proverbs is that Jesus shows up all over this book. It's amazing. Like right here in verses 5 through 8, we see the gospel message. Do not lean on your own understanding. Why not? Because it's broken. It's not working. Your understanding, jacked up, messed up. Not, not, am I allowed to say jacked up? Probably, right? So far, so good. I'm sure I'll get an email about that. It's okay. Um, be not wise in your own eyes. Why not? Because even if you were wise, you couldn't see it. Because you do bad all the time. 
You don't do good. You do bad. And it gets worse. It gets worse. You don't just do bad. You are bad. Like, really, really bad. The problem is that you can't do good things because you're too busy doing bad things because that's exactly what you want to do all the time is bad things. All you want to do is sin all the time. I promise. And maybe sometimes you're like, oh, maybe I want to do a good thing, probably because make you feel good, puff you up. What I'm saying is you don't just do bad. You are bad. And that's a problem. It's a fundamental problem if you are bad. And you've probably heard by now, you've been at EBF a while, maybe you are in a campus ministry, maybe you went to Moody or Trinity, or maybe you were raised in a good church. Gospel means good news. You've probably heard that. And that's, that's true. Um, but before the gospel is good news, it is very bad news. It's like the worst news you could ever get. The news of the gospel at first is, you are broken beyond repair, and there's nothing you can do about it. Let's pray. It's terrible. It's horrible news. You're broken. Destruction's coming for you. You're like a train going one place, right? And you're just bad. It's just, it's not going well. I don't care how much you recycle. I don't care how much yoga you do. I don't care how much soy milk you drink. It doesn't matter. You're bad. And on your own merit, you're paying for your sin eternally. Hell, you've probably heard of it. Not a good place. It's hot. Don't go there, right? Not good. Bummer. And if I stop right there, the gospel's terrible news. It's horrible news. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't. There's more to the story because all of a sudden, the hero is on stage. And the hero is named Jesus. And he is good where you are bad. He's good enough. And where you have failed, he's not failed. He's been faithful. His name is Jesus. And he came to earth on a rescue mission to save a bad people who only do bad things all the time, who could never do a good thing by wanting to be with God. But he came anyway, because he loves you, and he loves me, and that's the only reason we can have any hope at all. And that's the exact reason why verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. You have to. You have to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Because if you trust in yourself with all your heart, you're in for a lifetime of hurt, brothers and sisters. It's not going to be good. And that's why we must remember the person and work of Jesus Christ in our everyday lives what Jesus has done on your behalf when your best wasn't and isn't and will continue to not be good enough. It's the only way we can have a straight path. That's what verse 6 says, right? In all your ways, everything, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. He will make your path straight. And I like the idea of a straight path. It seems like everyone in Evanston is like one of those toy helicopters that's landing. It's sort of like circles and it wobbles and it sets down but then it lifts up again and it goes in some crazy direction and like half my best friends moved away last year i'd only been here like a year it seems like in evanston it's all these paths that come together and then take a crazy turn and then they go away like our church is even like that on sunday morning we show up at seven set up and we're out of dodge by noon right it's it's crazy it's just crazy and i wonder what it would be like to have a straight consistent path I just wonder what that would be like. And I, I was reminded of when I first went snowboarding. Has anybody been snowboarding? This is a hard sport. <laughs> this is, I was pretty good at skiing. So I went to Big Sky, Montana with some friends of mine, and I'd skied before. And so I was good at, like, pizza and french fries. If you guys know, even ski class. 
Um, and so I was pretty good at that, and I wanted to do snowboarding because it's cool and it's cool, and I was not cool, and I wanted to be cool. So I took lessons on the bunny slopes, and I, my feet, your, your feet are like together on snowboarding, which is hard if you've never, anyway, it's hard. So I spent a lot of time falling, but three or four days in, I, I figured it out enough that I was allowed to go to the top of the mountain with the family I was traveling with. And so they were all very advanced. So I was partnered up with my buddy's grandfather. So there's me, <laughs> right? So there's me, and there's him, and we're skiing together. Mm, I like tea. So, so we're skiing together. I'm sorry, no drinks in this room. Um, <laughs> so we're skiing together. And um, he's, you know, he's probably 70, and I'm 14, 15. And he's taking me around the mountain, and we're, that's, that's a chick magnet right there. Um, and so he was, he was going to take me on a, a, a trail that went around what's called the bowl exposure at Big Sky, Montana. It's like a mountain, and then you cut a hole out of it, and you fill it with powder and dangerous things. Um, that's kind of what a bowl exposure is like, as far as I understand it. And so we're going around this path that goes around the bowl, because I, there's no way I could make it down the bowl. So we look, we get off the lift, and we look down, and we can see straight through the bowl, like across it, in the distance is the lodge. And that's where we're going, but I can't go that way. So we're going around this, this, this trail. And, um, and I, I kept thinking, like, like how, how, I'm scared to be close to the edge, and I'm scared to, like, fall, and I spent a lot of time on my face that week. But I, one time... Um, my friend's grandfather said, Andy, look at this. And I turn, and that's it. Boom, into the bowl. So once you're in the bowl, you don't get out of the bowl. There's no way. There's just no way. So I spend about, it's, it's a long trip, um, very long trip. So I spend about half of it up, sort of rocking. And then I fall, and I spend the rest of the trip on my face, all the way down, right, like, like straight line for the lodge. And I get there, and I'm soaked with snow, and I'm bleeding, like, everywhere. I'm like a hot mess of awkward. You can't even imagine. I was awkward with my bowl cut before I was covered in blood and snow. But I got real awkward. And so before I knew it, there I am. And I, I roll up. I, well, I slide up. I don't know what I did. To the lodge, and it hit me. I just took the straightest path. I did. I just took the straightest path. And it was hard. It was hard. And I think sometimes we think that when God says, I got a straight path for you, that means it's going to be easy. We think it's going to be highway driving and cruise control and a Starbucks every 15 miles to recaffeinate. I've driven across this country many times and I cannot believe how many Starbucks are in this country. But we sort of think that the straight path is the easy path. But as I painfully learned in Big Sky, Montana, sometimes the straightest path is the most difficult path. And so we think that surely it's going to be easy, but we have to remember that Jesus took the straightest path for the cross, right? Tunnel vision, his whole life. He did all the right things. He was going straight at it. And even for Jesus, it was hard to take the straight path. It's like if you're hiking and you're going to go as the crow flies, it's hard. Hills, valleys, snares, bears. I don't know. But as Jesus walked straight for the cross, past separation from the Trinity, past his deadbeat friends who ran away, past all of that, he remembered the joy set before him. That there was a promise, and the promise was, I'm going to be with you. 
Because God doesn't promise it's going to be easy, but he does promise he's going to be with us. And he doesn't promise we're not going to suffer, but he does promise there's joy on the other side. And I think that as we radically remember the things of God, the things he's told us in his love letter, the things he's given to us as a gift, we have to not merely trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and forego our own understanding. We have to not only avoid a dangerous kind of amnesia that comes from our sorrow or our arrogance, but we have to remember God by honoring him and being obedient to him. We must remember God by honoring him and being obedient to him. You know, the, the, the section finishes up like this. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with grape juice. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. as a father, the son, in whom he delights. See, our remembrance of God begins by trusting who he is in the midst of suffering and of arrogance, and then it continues as we are mindful of the gospel and all that we do of the work Jesus has done for us. And then it manifests itself in the way we use our money, our gifts, maybe, maybe your talents or your, your attitude. See, this is one of those passages in Scripture that it's like, put your money where your mouth is, like actually money, but also not really money. These are, I love these passages. And if you've been around church very long, you know that preachers love to talk about money. I mean, you know, we, we, we can't help it. Um, and that probably seems weird to you, that we like to talk about money, all preachers. But keep in mind that Jesus talked about money more than anything else. Jesus talked about money all the time. And I think the reason he did that is because money and our checking accounts and our, our money spent and our debit cards, and our credit cards, it really shows where our heart is. It's really closely linked to our identity. We identify ourselves by what income bracket we're in. And Jesus calls us in the scripture to a radical kind of generosity with what he's, what he's given us. He asks us to remember the cross as we seek to use our money. And this manifests itself in a few practical ways. We're going to go real practical for a second here. And the first one, this goes, I think, without saying at EBF, but maybe not, is that you have to give money to your church. Now, it's easy for me to say that. I understand that. But coming to church is not about consumerism. Right? I know all about consumerism. I went Black Friday shopping. I put on my helmet, my flak jacket, and I went to Kohl's. You can't imagine the things I've seen. All right? It's like... I have a buddy in my ethos community who, uh, who was uh, in the military. And there's certain things I just don't ask about. I know. And, you know, don't ask me about, like, this was painful. We can't go there. It was brutal. Um, but I've been there, so I know all about consumer. I saw people tackling. I almost got, like, oh, I can't even talk about that. But I, I was trying to find a parking spot at the mall, and that was a terrible decision. I should have walked or something. But I know all about consumerism. And sometimes our churches are kind of like Walmart, you know? We sort of show up and we get what we want to get, and then we get out of town as fast as we can. Because for you, you know, the church is kind of like uh, something that you're just going to come to, and you're going to fill your little religious meter, and then you're gone. And there's no community, and there's no giving, and there's no sacrifice. But the problem is that churches where consumerism is the value are empty all over the country. They're like museums, right? They're dead. Or maybe there's tons of people, and they're dead. 
The problem is that consumerism does not create a healthy church. Because showing up at EBF is not about what you can get out of it. It's not about hearing magnetic, powerful preaching from a dashingly handsome man in a bow tie. It's not about that. It's not about that. Maybe for some of you it is, and we can, we can talk. But it's not about that. It's about family. Being a part of any church, EBF, any church you've been a part of, it's about family. It's about showing up and pouring in, and being poured into, maybe, yeah, but giving of yourself. And that includes your money. Everyone has to pull their weight. It's not really fair for you to assume that the person next to you with a better job is going to give, or because I'm a student, I can't really give any money because I don't really have any money. Then how do you eat at Edzo's four times a week? You know, I, I think it's the idea of stewardship, that we've been given something by God that belongs to God, and we take care of it. It's like a little pet rock. We, like, take it around with us, and we, we care for it. And so we have to remember God by being faithful with our money. And one way we do that is by giving to the church. That's one way we do that. It's a command in the Bible. Give. Take care of people. Because you want to support the church where you are a member of the family And it goes further. I mean, I could look at your checking account, and I would look at your Amazon history, and I would look at the things that you've spent all your money on, and I'd probably get a good idea of what you worship. I'd probably get a good idea of of where your time goes and where your money goes and what are your hobbies. And I might see that, oh my gosh, there's so much here, like so much of this and not any of this. But the idea is we have to be faithful. And I'm not knocking having a good hobby. Trust me, I've got plenty of good hobbies I'm not knocking that. I'm just asking, are you giving? And is your money demonstrating that you value God as supreme? Or have you bought every iPad that came out in the last nine months? I think there's three of them. If you're taking notes on an iPad, I'm not judging you. I promise. You're safe here. But it also means that not only our wealth, but the areas we've been gifted, we have to serve and pour into our church. Some of you, we need elders, and some of you men are qualified. You're just not doing it. You're not stepping up. It's time to step up, brothers. Some of you guys have jobs in a tough economy. And you spend all your time griping about your boss and your coworkers. Some of you guys are administrators. Are you blessing the church? Are you serving with that? The question is, does what you have in every way demonstrate that you believe and you remember in your daily life that God is supreme? and that he has given it to you, and that he owns it, and that it's coming back to him one way or another. It really is. And God promises in Scripture, in verse 9 and 10 here, you're going to have plenty. You're going to have plenty. Now, that's going to be hard for you, because for some of you, plenty is not enough. It's not enough to only have plenty. You need more. And you know, some of you guys are going to be really rich, and that's awesome. Invite me over for dinner. I love that. Maybe you have a washer and dryer. Still want a washer and dryer. Um, anyway, see, I'm a, I'm, I'm a consumerist. I know. It's, I'm wicked. I am. But if you're rich, awesome. Give out of your richness. I don't hate rich people. I love rich people. We all love rich people, right? They're so nice. But seriously, if you have a lot, you can give out of your much. And if you don't have a lot, some of you guys, you know, it's month to month for the rest of your life. And that stinks. But that's real life. But give out of your little. And some of you guys are freakishly talented, gifted, can do everything. Give out of your much. And some of you guys 
or a fantastic one or two things and give out of that. Because I know it's hard to be in the position of need. I know that it's hard to trust, but if we believe church is about family and not consumerism, then we believe that the church will help meet our needs. Verses 11 and 12 tie the whole thing together. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. It can be hard to know that God is faithful in hard circumstances when you feel like he's disciplining you or he's far from you or he's absentee. It can be really hard. But I think that in Scripture we see several good examples of being faithful in a hard season. Jeremiah 29 promises that we are going to be prospered and we have hope even in bad circumstances. I think about Job, a man who by all accounts was, was living for the Lord, was walking in faithfulness. Proverbs was like JV for Job. He was really awesome. And yet he endured this terrible suffering and he did grow weary from all the trials that came his way. I think about one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Lamentations chapter 3, where the writer says this, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He's driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again. And he keeps going. He made my flesh waste away. He broke my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me. Tough day. But it's the radical remembrance of the character of God and the promises of God that writes his spirit from its capsized state. He goes on to say, But this I call to mind, but this I remember, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait to the soul that seeks him. And I could go on and on. First Samuel, there's a stone of remembrance placed in Ebenezer. And in Joshua 4, there's stones of memorial placed, 12 of them that help us remember how God has been faithful. But each of these examples in the Bible is a great model for us to remember in all circumstances. To cast aside our foolish forgetfulness like they do and to embrace the power and wonder of God in the gospel. See, the gospel is not simply the entrance to the kingdom. When you hear the gospel and are saved, that's only the beginning. The gospel is the anthem of the kingdom. It plays on repeat for all eternity in every Christian soul and in heaven over the loudspeakers. The gospel is the anthem of the kingdom. And it keeps playing. And once we've believed that, once we've cast aside our forgetfulness, we honor and obey the Lord by being faithful with what he's given us. And that manifests itself for a lot of us in the way we spend our money. And as we remember God's character as we face suffering, as we remember God's character as we become arrogant, that where we are faulty, he is faithful, we can recognize that God has a way for us, a way through the suffering, a safe way through the waves, a way through the pain, that God has given us a straight path, and that he's waiting for us on the other side, with joy, for his glory, and for our joy. And so as we write the things of God on our heart, as we seek to remember, we're reminded of all that God is and all that he's revealed of himself in his scripture. We're reminded to be faithful, 
as we wait for the Lord to return. And we're going to remember him in prayer right now. Let's pray. Lord God, I, I thank you for this church. I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to open your word and to offer you worship, Father, by talking about the amazing things you've revealed to us. Father, I pray that you would help us to be mindful as we remember all that you've done for us. Lord, reveal to us the places in our hearts and in our lives where we have made exceptions, Father, where we have made exceptions and do not worship you fully. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves about the challenges of walking in faithfulness. Lord, help us to be real with one another as we live in community. Lord, to open our lives to each other, to encourage each other, to live as a family. And Father, we ask that you would take our lives and God, that you would make something beautiful from them. Father, that we would remember you in all that we do and we would offer our lives and ourselves to you in a powerful and real way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.